So it became a very fraught subject because many people were thrust out of work very quickly. And they, you know, they really saw this as a function of the activists, many of whom were not from the region. And they came in and they they really had very successful, <laughs> uh, very successful movement to stop the old growth poaching there. But while that movement happened, there was a lot of cultural fracture. Um, and a lot of that memory remains. A lot of people remember the precise epithets and cruel things that were hurled at them on both sides. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Coaching. When you hear that terrible word, you might think of elephants killed for their tusks or tigers slaughtered for their skins. Maybe you think of pangolins, cute little things poached for their role in traditional medicine. But I bet one thing you didn't think of was a tree. Yes, trees can be poached too. And in its way, tree poaching is just as dire as poaching an animal, perhaps more so. An animal might live 20 to 30 years, a tree lives hundreds or even more than a thousand. And the amount of timber that gets poached will truly astonish you. Look around you. What's made of wood? The floor, furniture, bookshelves? Poached wood might honestly end up in any of it, from redwood roof shingles to the body of your guitar to particle board furniture at Ikea. 30% of the world's wood trade is poached. But poaching, animal or vegetable, is more complicated than killing. There are humans doing the tree chopping, just like there are humans killing elephants. Here to walk us through this tangled vegetation is Lindsay Borgen. She's a writer, researcher, and oral historian, and was a 2018 National Geographic Explorer. Her work has been published everywhere from the Atlantic to National Geographic and beyond, and her book is called Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start by getting a bit of an idea of what tree poaching is exactly. What happens when a tree is poached? Sure. So tree poaching happens on a number of different levels, but um, much of the book really focuses on tree poaching in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And that actually tends to look pretty similar across the whole region. And so uh, usually what happens is uh, that a poaching will take place in the middle of the night, often from a conservation area. So whether that's a national park uh, or it might be uh, land that's managed by uh, the Bureau of Land Management or the Forest Service or a city park. And, uh, you know, it, it really is someone going in with a chainsaw and taking down a tree. Um, so depending on the kind of tree, it, it, it can take all night. It might be a two-part operation, depending on how far away you are from the road or from a city where someone might be able to hear you. And, and really, it looks like someone going in with a chainsaw and, and cutting down a tree, bucking it up, so cutting it into smaller pieces with that chainsaw, and loading it up into a truck and transporting it out. Um, and this happens with old growth, Douglas fir, cedar, some Sitka spruce uh, and redwood burls as well. So uh, it's it's pretty rare for an entire redwood to be taken down because of how massive they are. 
But the burls that grow on them are, are quite valuable and they often grow closer to the ground. And so there's a trade uh, of poachers that will cut the burl off of a redwood. So I also wanted to ask, because it's not always a live tree that gets poached, right? Like mm-hmm. you can poach dead wood too, which actually really shocked me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, poaching is, uh, it's kind of a crime that's defined by where the the taking uh, is set, you know, so it becomes poaching when you're taking from from the federal lands or provincial lands or what have you. Um, and that that includes anything from downed wood that might be very old and decaying uh, to standing trees, to burls cut off of stumps of trees that have already been logged, uh, you know, and, and even beyond trees, there's you can poach ferns from the forest floor. There's poaching of succulents from rock faces. And so uh, it's really defined by where the taking is is happening. I distinctly remember reading something about poaching of a rare cactus. Yes. I want to say in Utah, that was like an endangered cactus and getting exported to Russia. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or anyway, there's poaching that happens in almost every state of, of, Mm -hmm. of flora, right? So of plant life um, of various kinds. So like you're saying, cactuses, succulents, mosses, ferns, Um, you know, in North Carolina, there's a trade of what they call brown gold, which are like a particular type of lodgepole pine needle uh, that is used for landscaping and is really quite valuable. So um, natural flora poaching, you know, it comes in many forms and, and it does happen all around us. And I also wanted to kind of get into a little bit of why this matters, because Mm -hmm. I think Over the past few years, I personally have kind of gained the impression that wood, paper, things made of plants are by and large good because they're Mm. recyclable and they grow back as opposed Mm -hmm. to things like plastic. (laughs) And there are tree plantations all over the world. It feels like we're forever planting trees. So what is the impact of tree poaching and why is it damaging? Sure. So, um, and again, I, I think I'll just speak from the from the majority of the book's perspective of the Pacific Northwest, because there is poaching that takes place uh, in the global south, for instance, that um, is just kind of vast illegal logging. And that has a real effect on climate change and, and kind of our capacity to store carbon. Um, but, but even likewise in North America, we do not have a lot of old growth left at all. I think it's, it's just under 4%. Um, and it's 4% of the redwoods that once... Uh, stood in the Pacific Northwest are 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 remaining now, um, and so because there's a market for that old growth, and and that market kind of increases the longer it's protected and the less old growth we have elsewhere because it is being logged for products. Um, it when one is taken, or even when when downed wood is taken, uh, it has a real impact on the biodiversity of a forest of which we don't have many left. Um, and so, old growth is a is a kind of invaluable carbon sink, particularly in our own backyards. We there's not a ton of um, carbon cap natural carbon capturing uh, ecosystems, and old growth is one of them. They hold just. They they kind of like bat. <laughs> what what's the phrase that they kind of 
uh, are, are heavy hitters or they're, you know, like they're, they're really um, doing more than any other uh, part of the ecosystem to store and capture or to capture and store carbon. Um, and when one is taken down, you're not only adding carbon to the atmosphere, you're taking away a, a sink as well. Um, and because so much poaching is of old growth trees, there's there's a real effect on that. Um, and there's so little left and, and we, we really can't afford to lose any more. Um, and there's also... I, I think the know, sports metaphor you're looking for is actually batting a thousand. Okay, sure. Yeah, or like don't batting ask above me for their sports. weight. Yeah. <laughs> don't ask me for sports metaphors ever. <laughs> oh my God, I know. I, I don't know where my mind even got that. Anyway. Um, and so, and there's also an ecological effect as well. And so, um, you know, you were talking about wood that's that's de- deadened down, essentially, is what they would call it. So it's a, maybe a tree that was that has fallen naturally in a storm, or you know, over time fell on its own for whatever environmental reason. And when it falls, it, it just does not stop being important to the environment. It is uh, it is recycled back into the earth. It, it is filled with nutrients and mycorrhizal fungi and, and all of these uh, really important elements that ensure a healthy forest. And healthy forests ensure healthy people. We, we know that. Um, and so when those are even removed, you're impacting uh, the ecosystem of other of other animals, of other plants, um, and also the future of the forest as well. So I also wanted to ask, what happens to poached wood? Where mm-hmm. does it go? Like who buys it? Yeah, so um, it kind of depends on the on the species of wood. There, there's these kind of um, different economies for each one, I suppose. So a redwood burl uh, is very likely going to a burl shop. And these are very geographically specific uh, uh, shops that line often high, the, the Highway 101 that stretches up and down the coast. Um, and they might be turned into uh, kind of beautiful bowls and tables by artisans and then sold in the shop, or the the shop may sell it to artisans who sell products online. Um, so that's one way that they enter into the market. But as you as you grow north, actually, there's there's a much broader market for poached maple, for instance, which ends up in a lot of musical instruments. Um, and there's a there's also I mean, very kind of basic uses. So, you know, in British Columbia, where I live, a lot of the poached wood uh, is ending up being sold as firewood. Um, you know, it can be quite shocking to think that a that a kind of towering Douglas fir, for instance, is being taken down and and sold on Craigslist or Kijiji as a load of firewood. But there's a real need there, and so that's often how it's moved very quickly and put into the market and makes it really difficult to track. Um, and sometimes, you know, it might be sold to a mill that is willing to, uh, that knows that they can turn it for a profit really quickly, can sell it to a manufacturer or, or, a, or an artist or, or anyone who, who makes furniture. Um, and they can do it, do it fast and it ends up becoming a table. You know, I was interviewing, um, a, in the provincial park system and, and, up here in Canada, there's uh, there's a kind of level of law enforcement called a natural resource officer. So I was interviewing a, an NRO, as they're called, and he was saying, you know, I see all these beautiful live edge 
bars when I go to Vancouver or I go to the city at a cafe or or at a bar itself. And, and I really wonder where did this wood come from? You know, it's very likely that it came from a forest that it shouldn't have. That's so wild to think about. Um, just looking at the wood around you and mm-hmm. <laughs> realizing. Yeah. And there, you know, there are also much bigger cases where, for instance, there there's there's poaching, there's illegal logging going on in Eastern Europe. And that wood ended up being turned into cribs for IKEA. Like the chances of many, many people having that crib in their house is very likely. Um, there are instances of poached wood being turned into charcoal. You know, there, there's a really big charcoal market uh, in the summertime um, in in Europe in particular, and baobab trees from Africa have been known to enter, to be illegally logged and entered into the system that way. Um, so if you think about all the ways that wood is in our life, um, uh, you know, there, there's a chance that it did not come from a legal source. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about how, you know, you think of wood as a good thing. And it is like part of what I really kind of not struggled with, but grappled with when I was writing this book is that I actually think that we should have more and better wood in our lives. Um, and that, actually sourcing is a big part of this and that we may have actually in some ways become really separated from the ways in which we consume wood. And if we do so, do so more mindfully, it can be a benefit to communities and to the environment and to kind of sustainable use. Right. I think, I think that's kind of an issue that I feel like, I feel like was very apparent um, in in your book, that you know the people who are poaching this wood are in a way much more connected to the wood that they are poaching than the people who end up buying it in yeah. the form of pretty bowls. Or I think my favorite factoid in there was the fact that Gibson guitars had to yeah. pay like a huge fine for using poached wood for their guitar bodies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because and also, I mean, it's just fascinating, right? Like some wood conducts sound better than others. And some wood has beautiful sort of figured it figures in its grain, I suppose, that that make it just lovely to look at and make a really good guitar face. And I don't really argue that that shouldn't be the case. Like, I think that we should have the beauty of wood in our lives. Um, it's just coming to think about how we can do so ethically. Um, and like you're saying, like, you know, I was very lucky uh, with this book to really get to know some folks that have poached wood um, and they are, they understand the importance and beauty of wood in a similar way. Part of me, well, first of all, we're going to get back to that, but also Mm -hmm. the the 12-year-old part of me is just giggling constantly. To say wood. You know, Yes. Oh, isn't it hard? God, I write it. I write it all the time. We all need more wood in our lives. I know. I know. Please These help me. These people really know wood. I know. I don't know what to do about it because, I mean, it's been my life also for the past, like, not only just just talking about the book, but like, at the you know, the years in advance and me trying to figure out like the 
best way to talk about this without making myself feel uncomfortable. There's no wrong way to talk about wood, Lindsay. I know. (laughs) I was like, I got it out. I'm out. It's fine. So I did actually want to ask um, if you had some some numbers, uh, like how big of a business is tree poaching just kind of generally in the world? So, you know, starting in the U.S., um, timber poaching, uh, you know, it's quite it's quite surprising. So it's a overall from the U.S. alone, it's a one billion dollar annual business. Um, And from uh, the Forest Service alone. So in the past, the Forest Service has estimated that about $100 million worth of wood is poached from their land every year. That is a little bit of an older stat, I will I will admit, um, but it is also the most recent. So there is a little bit of debate among the, the community um, in terms of if that number is still relevant. But, um, you know, as of the kind of mid-2010s, it was. Um, and they, you know, their estimate is that one in 10 trees that is that is logged on their land is done so illegally, uh, which is quite a, so 10% is a staggering amount. In the, in British Columbia, um, the, the province, the province uh, estimates that about $20 million of wood is poached every year. Um, and then as you go around the world, the numbers just skyrocket, you know, into kind of a $150 billion industry of, of, of timber products being traded around the world that have been illegally sourced, whether that's one tree or here or there, like you might see in the United States, uh, or or vast kind of plots of land in the Amazon that are that are being illegally logged. I actually in the in the final parts of the book, I I detail the time that I spent in Peru, and even there, there were instances of old growth, single old growth trees that were identified as being very, very valuable being logged. So it isn't always clear cut scale. Um, it, it really often can be just one tree here or there that has been targeted and seen as valuable. Um, and often what makes it valuable is its age, it's, it's, it's age, it's height and it's, it's width. So. I will just say that I, I wish that humans gained more value as they aged in the yeah. way that trees do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a reason why those trees are valuable and that's because we don't have a lot left, right? So it's kind of a, it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy in that way, maybe like we, we've, we've conserved it and we, we've put it aside so that it remains living and, and, we receive the benefits from it, but because we've done that, the temptation to take it increases. So I also, I have to admit, I, I mean, I knew that people were cutting down the Amazon, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really heard of tree poaching necessarily mm-hmm. before I encountered your book. I mean, I did know that people wanted to cut down redwoods, but I always kind of assumed those were big evil companies, not people going in and stealing trees in the night. Um, And I was wondering when, when did you first become aware of tree poaching? Well, in 2012, uh, there was a story that was published by the CBC in Canada about an 800 year old cedar that was poached off of a park on Vancouver Island. And that was the case that really 
first of all, introduced me to the crime and then also got me, got me kind of going down this path because, you know, I grew up in the prairies. <laughs> I did not grow up around big old growth trees at all. And so this was very surprising to me that anyone would do this. Um, not only that they would do it, but uh, how they would do it and where the wood would end up. And also I started doing interviews with park rangers and they kept saying, you know, like, this is an open case and we don't, we basically don't know where it went or who did it. And I found that really kind of intriguing, you know, that it appeared to be something that after it happened was somewhat easy to get away with. Um, and so that's, that's how I first heard about it. And as I was reporting, I, I also started reading about the history of poaching and that really deepened my, my kind of perspective on the story and where I wanted it to go so that it was eventually less of a sort of law enforcement uh, article, or at the time it was an article, uh, and more of a kind of look at the socioeconomic and cultural foundations of the crime. Yeah, I was actually wondering what kind of, I know you've written articles, I believe for National Geographic about this. Mm -hmm. um, what made you realize that this was a subject that kind of needed a full book length treatment? Oh, well, at first uh, I went to the Banff Center's Mountain and Wilderness Writing Workshop and everyone in my workshop cohort uh, was like really, really supportive of this story. And they suggested to me that this could be more. Um, I was pretty young at the time and I didn't, you know, I think it, it felt like an overwhelming suggestion. I was still even trying to get my foot in the door to write features at magazines. Um, and so that's first where it started. And, you know, the, the more I read about it, the more I realized that they might be right because I just had so many ideas and things that I wanted to communicate um, that eventually it became far beyond what any article could do. And at the beginning of, of your book, you actually talk about this epidemic of tree yeah. poaching in the Pacific Northwest. And, and most yeah. of the book is focused on the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. um, why is there an epidemic of tree poaching now in particular? Yeah, um, that is a word that was used by a community forest manager uh, who is who uh, was really facing down uh, like hundreds of trees that were being that were being illegally logged off the land that he managed. Um, and so that was, that was an interesting email to get, you know, that, that came right to me from him saying like, we are struggling here with just the sheer amount of illegal logging every time I go out or of poaching that I see when I drive the roads here. And when I've, when I've interviewed community forest managers and people in the communities near where this happens, they've all been very kind of straightforward with me that this is going on because of poverty and inequality in the region. Um, this is often a part of the world that has older logging towns that when the logging industry kind of, it didn't completely halt, but when it, when it had a massive slowdown in the 1980s and 1990s, those towns were, were, often really irreparably impacted. There was m large amounts of unemployment. Uh, in many cases, whole towns were losing 
like 80% of their tax base as people left. And so services weren't really running as well as they could have. And this is one kind of trickle down effect of that is that there is crime. And not only is there crime, um, there's a population of people that know how to use logging equipment and know the industry and know the forest. And they uh, often feel very comfortable going out and identifying a tree that that can be logged and loaded up into the back of the truck and they might know where to take it. I also, one of the things I, I really appreciated while I was reading your book was that you talk about the history of the concept of poaching. Yeah. And I think that's really key, actually. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how hunting and timber harvesting have over time become poaching. Yeah. What because is that transition? Sure. I mean, I'm very interested in this and that that's because, I mean... Poaching becomes a crime when boundaries are set up around a piece of nature. Um, and so, you know, I think in the very beginning of the book, I go all the way back to, to 17th century England, where you've got uh, the aristocracy and, and people kind of in privileged positions that are creating what at the time were called forests. And, and it's not a forest the way that we think of it, where it's where it's a large group of trees. It's actually kind of large, open expanses of land. Uh, sometimes this even included whole towns uh, or people's houses that, uh, you know, the monarchy or or local decision makers would would fence off and say, we are preserving this land for hunting, you know, usually for for the king. Um and, and therefore, anything you take off of this land or that you may have taken off of this land is now illegal and a crime, and you will be fined for it or sent to jail. There, at the time, there was really big, interesting pushback around this. You know, you had groups of, of men and even sometimes women uh, going into forests, as they were defined at the time in the night, and poaching deer and taking out the trees that they normally would have had access to because this was really at a at a very difficult time where we were trend where communities were transitioning from a commons style of land management and and resource harvesting to to kind of demarcated enclosed land that had different management structure depending on where you were standing on it <laughs> um and you know i think as as we kind of progress through history and as the conservation movement begins in North America and in the United States in the in the kind of mid 19th century, similar things were happening. So sport hunting organizations were using um, the kind of language around conservation to, to essentially take land away from common use and to demarcate it as for their use only for hunting clubs and fishing clubs, as opposed to hunting and fishing for subsistence and for need, for family need. And so there are some examples of that in the book where, for instance, hunting seasons were set up and anything that was that was killed outside of that season was considered poaching and illegal, but the hunting season was set up did not 
align well with, for instance, the harvest that many people were working in. And so people were forced to choose between paying labor and going out to hunt for their year's meat. Um, And so often, you know, you would choose the paid labor and then risk the poaching later on. Um, And, you know, I think conservation, the conservation movement has had a very um, key role in in this. Um, You know, often we... Conservation is is a very needed um, needed practice, obviously. Um, but the way that it has been enacted throughout history is, has often been on a very unequal um, or through unequal means that don't consider people that use the land, as opposed to people who recreate on it, who hike and and hunt for fun. Uh, as opposed to for need. Um, This actually reminds me a lot of another um, author that we had on the podcast recently, um, Martin's book, Wild by Design. Uh, Mm. And I will go ahead and link that in the show notes um, so people can go back and take a look at it because that as well as this book reminds me that poaching is in a way kind of subjective, right? It's defined by the idea that one group of people has more right to a natural thing than another. Yeah, more right to a natural thing and also the the way that we use the natural thing is kind of subjected, like, like put under a moral lens. So not only is there a right to um, hunt, but it's it's being done in the right way. So it's not um, it's not for subsistence. It's it's for hobby um, or, you know, like trees are for walking within and feeling awe for and not for cutting down, you know? Yeah. And actually it's, it's funny because when I was reading the section where you talk kind of about the history of the concept of poaching, mm-hmm. I became very aware of all of these notes in kind of the history of culture and like mm-hmm. these kind of references in literature to things like forests and things like outlaws within forests. Um, yeah. So I think I think you mentioned Robin Hood, of course. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. And he was in the King's Forest yes, poaching. He was. Yes, <laughs> that is he what was. he was doing. And um, he was taking from the rich and giving to the poor, right? And so um, you know, this is this is something that is rooted in history outside of Robin Hood, but you can see where the stories came from, where you know, there are sources that show um or that discuss local communities kind of all gathering together at the pub before a before a sort of trespass on a property that they were all going to do together because they're making a statement you know and i was also thinking of you know in uh in shakespeare mm-hmm. uh he refers a lot actually to nobles usually escaping for some reason into the forest yeah a place of protection also a place of danger um but also a place that you know these nobles are escaping onto royal land yeah Mm -hmm. and they are living as outlaws on royal land and i think you know in modern interpretations we just think oh there's this dude living in a forest but it's really it's really (laughs) not that it's it's more than that (laughs) Yeah, it's part of a tradition, that's for sure, you know, Um, and also the power structures may have changed. Uh, So at that point, it was royal land. 
Um, and now it might be government land. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of folks have very uh, kind of anti-establishment reactions to that. Um, you know, I think there's a deep distrust of the federal government in a lot of parts in the West in particular, and uh, poaching relates to that for sure. It is a response to overarching anger, um, not only at the way that land has been managed, but the way that, you know, that they are treated by these kind of federal agencies or the people that work for them, or even that they, the way they perceive they've been treated, you know? Yeah, and, and what I also found interesting um, was that you note that the concept of poaching, and in fact, the concept of environmental conservation is about the land. It's not about the people who live on it. Yes, indeed. And you also note that forest sociologist Robert Lee noted that city dwellers are more likely to feel guilty toward nature and that this is actually about disconnection yeah. from the environment. I found this fascinating. Yeah. I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about that? Why why might people who live in cities feel more environmental guilt? Well, so I think a lot of it has to do with employment and perhaps how we how we earn uh, the money that that uh, that sustains our lives. Um, so, in rural often rural areas uh, where folks are working in, I don't even want to say just logging, but in general, natural resource extraction. Um, you know, there is this idea or there's this broader understanding that you can live surrounded by the forest and use it and also love it. I think there is a quote in there from a, from a union rep, actually, if I'm remembering correctly, who says that the logger works in the forest because he loves the forest. Um, and also that you have a relationship to something uh, that you're harvesting and that taking down a tree and or logging it, whatever term you want to use, um, is a sort of respect and understanding of that resource. And that, you know, there's a there's a certain kind of acceptance that this is entering into the cycle of the broader world and our lives. Um, and that, you know, a tree, a redwood, for instance, in the, the kind of early 20th century was being logged and turned into vats to make beer in Minnesota, um, that this was part of the cycle of being American and, you know, providing for this for the people around you. Um, and sometimes when we don't live amongst that and see it all the time, it can be easy to forget and it can be easy to sort of mythologize the natural world and see it as being perfect and something that we have ruined um, by using it. And I don't want to argue that we haven't overexploited and caused massive damage because we absolutely have. Um, but I, I don't actually think that's the logger's fault. I think that's like corporate greed um, and that mismanagement should be the focus of, of that anger and that guilt as opposed to logging itself. Yeah, I actually, 
was thinking about that also in that a lot of people who live in cities will have encountered woods, timber, trees uh-huh. in a very specific setting. Yes. Like yeah. you go to see the Redwoods because you're on vacation yeah. and you're mm-hmm. going to see the Redwoods because you are there to be awed by Redwoods. Yes. Yeah. Or you see them being clear cut on the news and that's horrible. It is like, I have no argument that that, that that isn't just vastly irresponsible on so many levels, but those are the two ways in which if you don't live there that you interact you know, with the, with, with the forest and with the trees. Um, and really there is a huge, huge distance in between them. And, and depending on where you live, you know, the urban rural divide, uh, you know, you might not always be traveling that distance. You know, this actually one or reminds the other. me, it's a, it's a strange comparison, <laughs> but this reminds me of churches in Europe. Yes. hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. So like for, uh, for those who might be like, what, why is she talking about churches in Europe? I'm thinking about the fact that when Americans, but also just tourists go to Europe, what we often go to do is see the churches, Sacre-Cœur, St. Paul's, Notre Dame, you know, like all those, we go to see the beautiful cathedrals and we see them and we're awed and they're amazing and they're beautiful And we're looking at them often from kind of a historical perspective, from an an, um, architectural perspective, an artistic perspective. And sometimes I've seen tourists a little surprised that there are people in those churches worshiping. Yep. And there are people who go to those churches for whom that is their church that they go every week. Yep, for sure. And, you know, I don't think that there's actually, I don't think it's a coincidence that, um, you know, for instance, there's, there's a, a, a segment of old growth called Cathedral Grove. Um, you know, I, these are the oldest things that we have in North America, um, you know, that, that really give us a sense of deep time. Um, but also they are places where people live. Um, and, Gosh, I mean, tourism is such a huge part of this, right, of where we visit and why and how we see it. And often tourist towns are not understood as a place where people actually live and have built their lives. Um, And that is something that has contributed to a lot of ill will toward the tourism structures, you know, whether that be a national park or or other layers of parks. in the West. Um, And so it all kind of builds up on each other in that way. It actually reminds me, there's a, um, a choral piece. It was an award-winning choral piece and it is actually called my cathedral. Mm. And it is based on the comparison between a cathedral and a forest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's beautiful. Wow. Um, But it also just really drives home that idea that, people who don't live in these woods are looking for that sense of awe. Absolutely. Yeah. And also people who live there see it in a different way. Yeah. And purpose. Right. So, um, you know, I, I hate to, you know, I'm very loath sometimes to say city people think this and rural people think this because that's not true. You know, like hashtag not all people. Yeah, exactly. But, um, 
I think that often as humans, we are looking for meaning. And if your work often, or if your work takes you to into the natural world and you're witnessing these cycles over years and years and years, you might come to accept that your meaning is as a human on the earth, as opposed to separate from the earth and that you're trying to find meaning within it, you know? And this actually sort of brings me into um, the fact that much of your book is centered on the timber wars yeah. um, in the Pacific Northwest. And I was wondering if you could give just kind of a brief overview of the timber wars, because it's, it's pretty recent history. Yes. And I find that in the case of a lot of recent history, a lot of people don't know a lot about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, it was, it, it very recently wasn't history. It was news, <laughs> um, but it, it, you know, it's, it's been my God, like 30 30 years, oh, 35, 30, 40 years. 30, yeah. 40 years. So, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, uh, Washington, Oregon, uh, Northern California, and then also BC, this is a logging, a logging economy for many, many decades. And, um, there have been booms and busts within that time. So times that were more productive and that, you know, people had more consistent work in times that were lower. And in the, you know, kind of as industrial logging um, perfected itself in a way and more and more trees were being able to take, be logged and, and taken out in less and less time. And it just became way more shocking. A lot of environmental activism began happening around, um, around this type of logging. And this is where, you know, you might remember iconic uh, images around tree sits and people chaining themselves onto logging equipment in the 1980s and the 1990s. And this was the timber wars or in Canada, we called it the war in the woods. And part of, part of this tactic uh, or part of the activism that was happening around this time is that um, scientists and activists and all sorts of people involved on the periphery were really arguing for the northern spotted owl to be added to the endangered species list because, uh, first of all, it was endangered. Logging has a massive effect on the northern spotted owl's ecosystem. They only perch in old growth trees. Not only do they only perch in old growth, but they they only perch in like certain heights of old growth. Uh, you know, like they're they are very... Uh, sensitive to their environment. And when when it was successful, when the Northern Spotted Owl was added to the list, it meant that anytime anyone in a logging operation saw an owl, they had to stop logging immediately and stop all operations and report it to federal authorities who would come and assess the situation. I can and see so this, this is, would make a lot of people immediately very blind to owls. Yep. Yeah, and not only very blind, but very blunt. I mean, this was a time when you would see um, bumper stickers on cars saying, like, save a logger, eat an owl, uh, or, you know, like, lots of jokes around killing spotted owls. Uh, very, very sort of blunt, dark humor around it. Uh, or, you know, I think there's another uh, quite famous bumper sticker that said, uh, do you work for a living or are you? Are you an environmentalist or do you work for a living? So it became a very fraught subject because many people were thrust out of work 
very quickly. And they, you know, they really saw this as a function of the activists, many of whom were not from the region. And they came in and they they really had very successful, <laughs> uh, very successful movement to stop the old growth poaching there. But while that movement happened, there was a lot of cultural fracture. Um, and a lot of that memory remains. A lot of people remember the precise epithets and cruel things that were hurled at them on both sides. And a lot of people remember the violence of it. And many people, uh, you know, are traumatized from what kind of mass unemployment does to a region. And when I started doing interviews around poaching, contemporary poaching, I started hearing a lot of people say, they took away logging from us. And this is what I knew how to do, what my dad knew how to do. And I'm just doing it because that's how I know how to earn money. And whether that's fair or not, I think it's a really interesting perspective to hear. Um, you know, I think there is still legal logging that happens in the region and it is still possible to get a job in logging. It might not be uh, very steady and it, it might be very, you know, competitive even to get. But there, it was taken very, very personally. And this is a region that is still living in the, the kind of aftermath of it. And so when you drive up and down the coast through towns that were once small towns, uh, but industry towns that, that, you know, were essentially bustling that had services and schools and highways through them and shops and all of this. And you can see now how, how those have gone away and how there's, there's really a lot of poverty around. I mean, that is a direct effect of the impact of shutting logging down on a region. So I actually want to, I will want to get back to that, but I also wanted to ask one of the things I loved about this book was learning about kind of different parts of tree life that I did not know about before. <laughs> um, sure. So I wanted to get into burls because I yeah. have never heard of a burl did before you, opening this book. I've never heard of a burl. <laughs> did you realize that you had seen one though? Uh, you know, can you, would you no. know? No. Okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I, um, I don't think I would have known this really, but um, if you've ever looked at a tree and noticed that it had a huge growth coming off the side, often like a spherical, you know, like a big belly or a big bump coming off the side and it's covered in bark, that is a burl. Um, and burls grow on all sorts of trees all sort in all shapes and sizes, uh, but big trees have really big burls. Um, and what what a burl is is it's often formed as a stress response. So, if a tree has been struck by lightning, a burl might grow in response to that as a kind of safety measure. Um, often within it, you'll have essentially the the a kind of time capsule of what the tree has has held within it in terms of you know, evolutionary wisdom, genetics, uh, all of this. And a burl can often survive a forest fire and it will lead to new growth sprouting from it. It is essentially a, a little pocket of diversity. 
or sometimes uh, a very big pocket or sometimes a, a very big pocket so redwoods for instance they grow huge burls and they're the i think an important thing to note about burls is that the wood on the inside is really beautiful it's because it's apart from the tree ring kind of process it's often un unmarked wood it won't have any knots on it um, and just really smooth very soft so well not not pliable but you know easier to use if you're gonna forge something from it or spin it into a bowl or or make a statue um and so for redwoods there is this market for burl because redwoods are really big their burls are really big and you can you know, you can carve them into slabs and use them as whole tables or, you know, in some cases they're just, they're carved into so many things um, and they're very, very beautiful. And I was actually wondering, you know, these are stress responses to the tree. Yeah. Why, but there's also burl poaching and a lot of your yeah. book actually centers on the yeah. very big uh, kind of move to poach burl. Yeah. Why is it especially harmful to poach a burl? Because if it is a stress response, people poaching burls, they're not going to kill the tree, right? Well, so this is the argument. Um, there is some disagreement between uh, folks who poach burl um, and, and, and kind of scientists and land managers who argue that uh, it is still harming the tree. So I think it's on a case-by-case basis. But a burl essentially ensures that there will be future old growth, you know, because eventually it will lead to a new tree. So it is it's kind of a theft from the future in that way. Um, for instance, there, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about a case of burl poaching where this where where the poacher had carved off a burl about eight feet high into the air and and had or up the trunk and had really dug in to the trunk to um to 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 kind of peel off the burl and in that instance it was so deep that you could see the heartwood of the tree and in that case and in and other ones like it the the structural integrity of the tree is being damaged so it, it becomes at risk of you know falling during a storm or uh you know that that bacteria or fungi uh, can can kind of creep in and cause an infection that might kill the tree, you know, from the inside out. Um, so taking of the burl itself might not kill the tree, but it could lead to situations in which a tree cannot kind of adapt itself as well, um, or might be open to to harm. Um, in another instance, you know, there was burl actually poached from a stump of a, of a redwood that had already been logged back in the 60s. Um, but that burl and that stump already had new redwoods growing around it. And so the removing of the burl meant that um, the, the kind of genetic benefits that it brought disappeared. So speaking of genetics, um, hmm. in this book, you talk about the different methods that scientists use to track down timber poaching. Yes. Um, and so one of those is, of course, tree DNA, right? You take yeah. your your chunk of poached wood, you compare it to a piece of wood that is not poached, and you see if it's the same. And yes. I was actually wondering, what are some of the challenges of trying to track down tree DNA as opposed to, say, human DNA? Yeah. I mean, this is really uh, it's quite interesting. So 
Often the challenge with a burl poaching case is that you might come across the stump, but not the poached wood, or you might come across the poached wood and not the stump. And in that sense, you need to, like any crime scene, you need to connect the the hall with the theft site. Um, and that really is where a lot of timber poaching cases stop is that, you know, you're not sure which stump in the forest this wood that you have found that you know is very likely, for instance, redwood that's been illegally harvested, you still need to prove that it came from the park and not from an area where there might be redwoods growing that you're free to, to log. Um, and this is often where cases end up stopping uh, because as much as you know, listen, this is very beautiful old growth redwood, the chances of this being legally harvested are very, very low. You still can't prove where in the where in the illegal zone <laughs> to take from, you know, that where it came from. Um, and so there is some very, very interesting DNA work that's being done around this. They're both actually, both researchers or both projects are based out of Oregon. And one of them is, is led by a fellow named Rich Cron, who is a researcher for the Forest Service. And he's working with an organization called Adventure Scientists to create um, DNA profiles of regularly poached trees, actually kind of all across the United States right now, but it started in the Pacific Northwest. And what they've managed to do is they've managed to create profiles through taking cores from trees and uh, other sort of uh, tree detritus, if you will, so pine cones and leaves, and, and creating a sort of database that once, once seized wood is taken from a mill, for instance, because say a mill owner calls the police and says, I think I've got some, I think somebody's trying to sell me poached maple. And I've, you know, I've kept a load of it. Do you want to come, come grab it? They can then test the DNA of that wood using a, using a sort of, um, a process that also, to be honest, is used at, on human crime scenes uh, to, to match DNA from between, you know, DNA samples and humans themselves. Um, and, and it can help. So I assume they're looking for a single nucleotide polymorphism. That is exactly it. And thank you very much yeah. because I don't feel, <laughs> I, I often don't feel comfortable saying the, the processes out loud uh, just because I've written them. Um, it's okay. I got your snips. <laughs> thank you. And so, um, and it can actually identify within 10 kilometers where a tree likely grew, which is quite remarkable because, you know, at that point, you know, previously to that, it had been like, well, we know that old growth maple grows here, here, and here, and 80% of it is protected. So 20% isn't, and we have no way of knowing really if this came from forest service land or, or somebody's backyard. Um, and now that can be narrowed down to 10 kilometers, uh, which means it's very, very likely that um, you can identify if it's if it's illegal wood or not. And you also describe this truly fascinating technique called yes. DART. Yes. And so please this, talk about that because I love it. <laughs> sure. So um, and this is this is also research that's being conducted this time out of Ashland, Oregon, and it's the Fish and Wildlife Services Forensic Lab. And so the Forensic Lab is very interesting. It was started um, 
kind of with animals in mind mostly um, uh, because for, there was poaching of elk and poaching of deer and and kind of smuggling for of green turtles around Florida and things like this. But as they as they started their work, they realized that timber was this massive international crime poaching network going on with timber and that it might actually benefit them to to figure out how to identify if timber or wood has been poached or not. Um, and what they've done is they used um uh, they use this machine called a dart. It looks like a photocopier that kind of has some some tubes <laughs> going into it. Um, and they are working on creating a database of all of the I believe it's 9,000 uh, trees that are listed on the CITES appendix that lists endangered trees. And so CITES is the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. Um, any manufacturer that is caught trading a timber product that is listed on a CITES appendix is breaking the law. But what can be challenging with timber is that it's, it's manufactured and transported in all sorts of ways. So you might be a customs officer going through a uh, shipping container of two by fours uh, at a port. And the chances of you knowing this wood looks like it's made out of Dalbergia nigra, which is, you know, appendix one highly endangered tree is very slim. And it, it's ridiculous to even think that we, we should expect people to know that. And so using the DART machine, um, the, the forensics lab has created a database that creates essentially uh, kind of fingerprints uh, for each of these endangered trees. And they do that by taking very small slivers of the endangered wood and holding it between these two sorts of points uh, that, that almost meet on the machine. They look like two two pyramids that are that are kind of facing the tips are facing each other and it gets very very hot in between it and it burns the singes the wood and the oils that uh that are released in this process the 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 kind of uh, you think about aromatics air, yeah you know like the uh, essentially the smoke that comes off of that is absorbed mm -hmm. by the dart and um a on a connected computer um, a sort of uh, profile of this tree is then shown that that kind of maps out the properties of this DNA. And that means that if some, if there's intelligence that shows that, you know, this shipment of chess pieces, for instance, are made out of poached wood, those chess pieces can be seized, a tiny sliver taken off, fed into the dart, and see if it matches any of these DNA profiles. And so it makes it really easy on a global level to start thinking about traded traded wood that is just kind of enters our our globalized system and can feel almost impossible to catch and to stop the trade. It really puts a damper on that. So, I know that, um, you know, you talk a lot about with uh, with the law enforcement people about mm -hmm. tree poaching that includes, you know, the natural resource officers, it includes park rangers, yes. uh, forensic chemists, etc. But I really appreciated how in this book, you talk a lot with people who are doing timber poaching, in particular, some of them were even being prosecuted for timber poaching while you spoke to them. 
Yes. yes. Um, and, and they were very open and yeah. honest with you. And I was they wondering, were. how did you go about building those relationships? Because I know it's very hard to get people to be open about, you know, everyone's the hero of their own story. Yeah. <laughs> be open about the, the things they did that were not the greatest. I had done you know, research beforehand on, on ongoing timber poaching cases. And I knew that there were a few from Oric, California, which is a park town. It's on the very Southern end of the Redwood National and State Park. It's a gateway community, as they say. So um, like literally you drive through Oric and then you're in the park itself. And I knew that poaching was, was happening in this town or, or by residents in this town. And there was a case uh, from 2013, 2014, and I went there first to do interviews around that case, but I knew that there was an ongoing case at the same time. Um, and so I just, um, you know, I, I, I showed up, I started, there's a, there's a business on the edge of the town called the Shoreline Deli, and, and it's kind of like a hub for the town itself. So I, you know, I went there and I talked to the owner and I asked who she thought I should speak to. And it, it unraveled in that way very quickly because people are very open. Um, I will say that when it came time to reaching poachers, you know, definitely everyone in the town, they, they provided me with, with contact information or introductions. And I don't think they would have done so if they, if they thought that the, that it wouldn't go well. Um, and I've said a few times, and I really believe that I don't think a lot of people had ever asked any of the poachers why they did, why they poached or, or you know, why they did what they did. And so um, there was a real interest in sharing their, their perspective and their side of it, uh, particularly at length. You know, I was very clear that we would spend a lot of time talking about like their families which they universally loved and wanted to talk about. Um, and, you know, that I wanted to get a sense of what it was like to live in a park town um, and how that may have affected their perception of conservation and, and the town or, and the park itself and what it was like to be a logger because many of them had worked in logging or mills. And so I think the fact that I, that I went in with a very uh, slow approach and also an approach that, you know, it was very clear that I was speaking to them because of their cases, but that I wasn't going to speak to them only about that for like half an hour. You know, I, this was interviews that occurred uh, for from over months. Um, so um, I think just being open and honest and, you know, saying that I'm not writing, you know, I was very open that I was writing the story, like using a lot of history and that I wanted to broaden kind of the reader's perception of what poaching even was. Um, I think that was all very helpful, um, it, that it was not just a crime story at all. And I actually was wondering, did talking with these people, the vast majority of them are men, um, did talking yeah. with oh, yeah. these, these men change how you viewed tree poaching and its enforcement? So I have to say that I went into it after having read a ton of history. Um, and so my view had already kind of changed, you know, or it had changed in the extent that my questions had changed for sure. The things that changed in my perception were that, first of all, that I felt that that they would really not want to speak to me. <laughs> so 
the the kind of generosity uh, that they provided me was was actually quite surprising. And because of that, um, you know, I I had to change my my perspective a bit because I knew that it would maybe be on the interviewing front a bit more collaborative in that way that, you know, that we would be talking a lot about what details they wanted me to include and what, you know, negotiations in that part. But I was actually surprised that I didn't have to do, have to spend a lot of time uh, kind of convincing them. Um, But I knew going in that, that park towns had a lot of fraught um, politics and attitudes around them. And I knew that I wanted to hear about the histories of their families um, I think I was very surprised at the connections, um, like the deep connections between this group of poachers, particularly in Oric, and how deeply kind of interlinked they all are through friendships and marriages and growing up together and stuff like that. I think um, I didn't expect it to be so tight knit. So I, it sounds a lot like you really kept an open mind um, around these sources and kind of made it clear that you were telling kind of the truth about their lives and not about just yeah. like their crimes. Yeah, I wanted it to to be partly life history or as much as they were willing to share with me. I was, you know, um, I was wary that not everyone would want to share every detail of their lives. And I certainly wasn't going to to push too hard for, for that. But, um, I, I went in with a, with a kind of broader list of questions that I wanted to ask them. And I, you know, I think that that helped. It wasn't simply, why did you do this? You know? Um, right. Yeah. And I, I actually also wanted to ask about the takeaway of this book, because your Mm -hmm. book talks a lot about what tree poaching is. It gives an idea of some of the scale, but it doesn't really tell people what to do. No. Yeah. Because I'm very, um, (laughs) I'm not an expert, first of all, in solutions journalism. I think that that is a, you know, that that's a whole field. And um, I, I was just thinking about it because, you know, we learned about ivory poaching. Yeah. Uh, People were made aware and there were movements to like never buy ivory and turn in all the ivory that you have, but it's a little naive to say that we shouldn't buy wood. Yep, for sure. And I think, um, you know, my, my takeaway from it is first of all, that we shouldn't be buying as much like fast, I keep, you know, I tend to call it fast furniture, kind of like fast fashion, but, um, you know, to, to ease up on, uh, the amount of products that we're buying, I think is important. And then to be very aware of where, what we're buying comes from so that as much as possible, local economies are being supported. Um, I think that there uh, is there are great opportunities in structures that are like community owned and run. So um, mills that are not operated by uh, huge multinational corporations, but perhaps smaller mills uh, that have an interest in in kind of sticking around longer um, and that have skilled employees that that really identify and know how to do logging and understand the forest. Um, I think that buying to support them is, is really, really important. Um, um, yeah. And I also wanted to ask, 
reading your book, I became very curious because you describe yourself as an oral historian. Yes. Um, And I was wondering what that means and how you think it affected your approach to writing this book. Yeah. So I, um, so when I was uh, 30, I went back to, to get my master's in history. You know, I, I had been working as a journalist for, I think almost a decade by that point. And I had really, it had kind of come to me over the time that, you know, the stories that I was interested in were always kind of had really deep historical narratives that I always wanted to, to weave in. Um, I actually hadn't studied history. I think I had a very kind of narrow conception when I was younger, what history, like studying history was. (laughs) But as I got older, I realized that I wanted to learn more about like the research process and the the process of, of writing history. So all that's to say, I went back and got my master's at in history. And, and at that point, um, my, my advisor had suggested, you know, that I might be really interested in oral history. Uh, and he was absolutely right. I just, I started reading about it and I was just taken away with how much it basically encaptured everything I was trying to do with my writing. Um, and so when I, when I did that, you know, I did my thesis on, um, it was an oral history about the end of British Antarctic whaling, which only ended in 1963. And so there were there were quite a few former whalers still living that I was able to interview. And I took that um, I took that experience with me as I as I pitched Tree Thieves and sold the book and and all of that. I knew that I wanted to to sit down and talk about essentially a period of time. Uh, you know the the late. 20th century and what it was like uh, for people that worked in logging in this particular region at that time. There are a couple approaches to oral history. Uh, Sometimes they can be kind of institutionally run. So I think it's pretty common to see, you know, for instance, an oral history of an organization's founding. But I was interested in a kind of history from below perspective, which is basically that working class communities and and other marginalized communities, they often have really strong oral traditions and their their experiences of historical events um, are not as recorded as corporate histories, for instance, where there's like a really strong paperwork trail, um, an archival trail, um, and that oral history really provides an opportunity to record experiences of everyday life. Um, And that, that was really what I what I wanted to focus on with my interviews, particularly when I was in logging communities. Um, And the the approach I took was that I was not only gathering facts for a story, um, but that I was adding um, a record to history through somebody's voice and stories. Well, Lindsay, this book is fascinating. It's it's thank like you. true crime but trees. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for for speaking with me about it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Lindsay Borgen and her book Tree Thieves: Crime and Survival in North America's Woods, we've got links and information for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
While you're there, please check out links to Twitter and Facebook, and please do subscribe to the show if you don't already. We also have a Patreon page and accept both recurring and one-time donations. We are entirely listener-supported, and your donations help our editors and producers do their wonderful work. If you can't make a donation, that's fine. We would love a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews also really matter, and we'd love your help getting the word out about our in-depth conversations about science. No matter what, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 